A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of What Most People Think. That is, here it is, it's the big fiver. We made it to the half century. Are you right? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna salute the Barmy Army over there because that's what cricketers do. And you know, if anybody was with me from the very first episode of this podcast, it was a bit of a scratchy innings to begin with, let's be honest. There are a few appeals behind, a couple of LBW shouts, but I'm still here. And guess what? I've got an absolute banger for episode 50. I've got David Badil. On the show, what date? What that? Yeah, that David Badil. What the Mary White? Yeah, that one. What, what Newman and but yeah, that one. What Badil and Skinner? Yeah, that fucking David Badil, right? Buzzing, and I am a fan, as you can already tell. So the other caveat is that I was probably a bit of an ass kiss in this interview. You you're gonna listen to it, and you're gonna go, Jesus Christ, Knocker, you are crawling up there. Badil asks today, and unashamedly so. I'm a fan, and the guy came on my podcast, and I'm grateful, and I think you're going to enjoy the chat. We spoke about everything, man. We spoke about Brexit, life, love, death, golf, U2, wokeism, anti-wokeism, anti-Semitism, pro-Semitism. I don't know if we did specifically speak about that. Maybe we do need more of that, guys. Um... So yeah, this is my podcast. So you listen to it on the first time for the first time because David's on. Then it's called "What Most People Think" because uh, you know I'm coming at this from the revolutionary angle of somebody who is in line with probably the average bloke. I think you know somewhere in the middle of uh, British politics. But of course, it being comedy, I comedy usually being somewhere left of Karl Marx. Somehow this is all radical. Um, but yeah, I'm not afraid to say really outrageous things like that when it comes to the exam result clusterfuck. Maybe. The Tories just were incompetent, rather than this narrative that's building, that they sat in their bad guy lair, right? <laughs> they sat there, they twiddled their bad guy moustaches, and they thought, how can we hurt the poor? Because obviously, if we deliberately disadvantage poor people, nobody's going to notice or mention it or talk about it forever. And yeah, this is this is one of the, uh, the effects of a strict lockdown, isn't it? It's, it's very difficult to deliver exam results when you have to pull them out of your ass. You know, it's effectively, and I hate to use another cricket analogy here, they've, they've sort of used the uh, Duckworth-Lewis method on exams. It hasn't really worked out well. And it also happened a bit in Scotland, and then Sturgeon, not used to being seen as unpopular, she was then suddenly massively on the back foot, and she started, started offering all sorts to the kids. I'm like, no, you know what? It's going to be better than the predicted grades. You know what? If we're not even going to do it based on grades. We're going to do it on whoever's like really good at Fortnite and who can skin up blindfolded or, or something. So one thing we do on this podcast is we have a thing called a cuss count, which is once upon a time, I was getting complaints that I was swearing too much, right? And then being Britain, I got complaints that I wasn't swearing enough. So instead of trying to change anything, we just decided to monitor it. Oh, by the way, quick shout out to the patrons. Well, there's one £10 patron, new £10 patron this week, Justin Boone. Okay, what a great name, Justin Boone. But Justin Boone sounds like a porn star from the era of porn where they still had titles that weren't just, you know, fairly blunt descriptions of what was happening in the thing. It wasn't... <laughs> of course now I feel compelled to give an example of each. So back in the 90s, porn films still had names like Vanilla, Vanilla Squeeze <laughs> or something like that. Now, of course, they've got names like, you know, Rancid Steps. You know the, the stuff I'm talking about. So big shout-out to Justin Boo. That's what your VIP patron gets you, a guaranteed shout-out where I will compare your name to 90s porn. We were talking about the cuss count, weren't we? So uh, David Domain, who actually featured in one of the Front Room Fringe shows, thank you to everyone that came to those. The next two are on next week on the 20th and 21st of August. But David Domain got a nice round of applause because he puts together all the swearing. He gives a sort of a tally count. And I, I challenged him to see if we could do a ratio of swearing. And it turns out in the last show, I did 47 over 37 minutes. So that's 1.27 swears a minute. That's quite high. That is quite high. But let's go through... What swears we had last week? One arse, one bastard, one bullshit, eight fucks. So that actually works out as one every four minutes. You just wait, there'll be a fuck along every... There's like a tube train, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the central line, the fuck line. 
Uh, one fucked, 27 fuckings. Well, Jesus, that's like the Piccadilly line. They're just coming along every few seconds. Yeah, that was London-centric. You know what the tubes are, don't you? You fucking northern monkeys. Um, and by the way, obviously in the modern era, I have to explain that northern monkeys means that I think northern people are stupid. Um, three piss, one prick, three shits, and one twat. So, one twat, just out on its own, like me. I do a quick thank you and a fuck you, as ever. Thank you to anybody that's listened to this podcast, ever. Particularly to people that stuck with it right at the beginning. Because let's be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing there. You know, if you go back and listen, don't you know? Don't go back and listen. I, 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 there was some funny stuff in there, but I certainly enjoy doing it weekly now, which is uh, partly what the Patreon's for is. You know, if you want to support the podcast, keep it weekly and ad-free, so I don't have to sell, about, sell out to those corporations like fucking Ben and Jerry's, you know, telling me... Telling me what view to have on the migrant crisis. You know what, Ben and Jerry's, right? You know why Hagen Dazs doesn't make statements about a migrant crisis? Because strawberry cheesecake is undeniably good. They don't have to attention seek. You know what, you're like Hagen Dazs. You're, you're like the kind of uh, girl that's pretending to make out with her friend at a pub. Not because she wants to kiss her, which would be fine, but just because you want people to look at you. Well, you know what? <laughs> this. This is a very strange way. But make some better ice cream and then maybe you wouldn't have to come up with some fucking stances about shit that's nothing to do with ice cream. Um, and a fuck you to the weather. Okay, I'm going away on holiday tomorrow. And when, when did the good weather stop? Oh yeah, today. So I'm going to go. But do you know what, God? Okay, fucking lefty. Trying to smite me with your weather shit. I don't care. Because God, you also, you idiot, you invented alcohol. So... I can make the sun come out whenever I want. Yeah, that sounded weirdly demented. Anyway, look, David Bedell, let's get on with the chat. Okay, uh, this is what most people think, and I've got a guest, a special guest for the 50th episode, which is David Bedell. Cheers, mate, for coming on. My pleasure, Jeff. How are you? I'm good, mate. I realised that I overdo the mate thing. I'm sorry, I did that in our correspondence in terms of getting you on. In our correspondence, yeah, you actually wrote mate uh, twice in one sentence. (laughs) We were setting this up. And I did say, look, we know that your brand is I am the white working class comic, but you don't have to say mate quite that much. I get it. The truth is is that I do in life. I'm like that. I think it's it's a sort of desperate sort of idling hope, hope, really, that I'll be everyone's mate as well and uh, but he, he, I realised so I, I'll switch to I'll try and go between like squire geezer the yeah. wor- the worst one is chap when another bloke calls you like chap there's something fucking aggravating about that I've never to be honest with you that that would only be in a Guy Ritchie film with someone <laughs> too hard to be a copy <laughs> chap uh, it's, it's been a while since I've heard squire uh, unironically and I know you weren't doing it unironically either but I think as well if I could uh, let light in on magic, uh, we were having a bit of a chat and you were very kindly saying that you've been a fan for quite a long time. Yes. So I'm also going to ascribe it to a certain awkwardness, if you don't mind me upfronting that. You probably thought, well, I want to be Dave's mate. Yeah, because, I do. You know, yeah. uh, I've, I've been a fan of this for a long time. And now what I've unfortunately done is over overdone that subconsciously by writing mate. Three or four times in one sentence. Yeah, it's just uh, the subconscious is powerful, isn't it? It just finds its yeah. way out, whether by through your mouth or through your fingers on a keyboard. And and then I was suppose I was only really left with the option to to sort of try and double down on it ironically. But the truth yeah. is, it, it's it's out of, it's out of the bag, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Another thing that we sort of mentioned just briefly before we got going is is the power of somebody's fame or, 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 or their body of work when it was existing when you got into something. So to, to try and put that more sensibly, it was when I started knowing what comedy was, you were already doing it, you know? And so yeah. your, your body of work has been around the whole time. So that is genuinely something that, that, that it can be a bit overawing. However, anybody that got famous or got good at comedy during the time I've been doing it, I don't give a fuck if they're playing Wembley Stadium. It just does not impress me at all, and I don't know why that is. Right. That's interesting. I mean, I, I agree. I think anyone that you uh, grew up with and got you into the thing that you do and, uh, you know, the thing that you loved uh, is going to be someone who you always feel is a bit uh, divine. Like, it's like, there's a slight like God status. I mean, I say that thinking of right behind me now, there's a picture of me laughing with Michael Palin. <laughs> uh, and that's because I interviewed him 
uh, on stage about a year and a half ago, but we were standing backstage and the picture, he's really pissing himself at something I said. <laughs> and I, 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 for me, that is an amazing picture because it feels to me like that here I am jamming with one of the Beatles, basically. Uh, and so I can't think of Michael Palin completely, even though I didn't know he's been to see me do stand-up. He came to my West End show. Obviously, I interviewed him. He lives around the corner. I don't think of him entirely as a normal human being, though. And, and nor would you want to in some respects, because, because they always say to this, me and my wife love going to Ibiza, right? And we have discussed maybe one day living there. But then I sort of said, well, if then we'd not have an Ibiza to go to. And if you fully accepted Michael Palin as a, just a human being, then you wouldn't have the idea of Michael Palin. Yeah, no, that's right. I don't want people from Monty Python. I mean, I should say that that is, you know, I was very young. I'm not that old when Python was happening, but probably... Uh, I mean, I also became friendly with Peter Cook uh, just towards the end of his life. And actually, that was a really weird thing because one of the other things, which we're sort of touching on a bit here, is when you do meet your heroes, and I, in my show about fame, I talk a lot about this, you're worried about fucking up. Yeah. And, I, I'm, and that ha- I've done that a lot with various heroes of mine, and I did it with Peter Cook, who's a massive hero of mine, because probably even before Python, my brother played me Derek and Clive. Yes, um, yeah. And Derek and Clive, uh, younger listeners may not know, but it's basically Peter Cook and Dudley Moore improvising out of their heads and getting as filthy and as politically incorrect as they possibly can. And I, for me, it was, it was closer to punk than punk was. For me, it was like comedy punk rock. And I, was, I can't remember before that, I was about 13, ever laughing in such an extreme way. So then anyway, many years later... When I did the first series of Fantasy Football League, Peter was a guest on it, and he didn't really enjoy it. It was towards it was it was yeah. already when Peter was quite drunk most of the time, and he came on a couple of times. He wasn't brilliant. There's no getting around it. But he sort of just thought that was our fault because he's Peter Cook and he's got the right <laughs> yeah. to think that. And I bumped into him later on, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, you edited me badly, didn't you?" And I we hadn't. It's just that's the way he translated it, right? So I thought, fuck, I have, I have upset one of my great heroes. And I felt bad about it. And then about a year after that, I was just going through, walking through Hampstead, where he lives and where I live. Um, and his wife, came, Lynn, came up to me and said, oh, David, come back and see Peter. He'll love to see you. And I remember thinking, he won't. He doesn't like me. Yeah. I went, because I thought, well, I'll chance my arm. And we ended up watching Match of the Day together. And like, it was quite in the afternoon, and I stayed there all the time until match of the day. And then a brilliant thing happened, which was Lynn kept on saying to him, we're supposed to be going out. Can you stop watching football with Dave? We've got to go out. And he just kept on putting her off. And eventually he said, all right, I'll go and get changed. He went and got changed and came back in the most ridiculous pair of clown trousers <laughs> that he clearly got from somewhere, which was a joke just for me. And she just instantly said, go and take those off. We can't go out with you wearing those trousers. What I've got on my person in that space is an unusual one because, well, it's Bono, basically. I, I have, um, and it, it's, it's a weird because there's a lot of things I like that comedians don't tend to like, and it's not always, it's not a willful thing, but I just, I just like things that can piss comedians off, and Bono is one of them. But I, you know, I, I've, had, I've, I've had vivid, repetitive dreams about meeting him. And, and the other night, I had a dream about meeting him where he referenced a previous dream where I'd met him. So I think he's. <laughs> It's probably better if I just never meet. I think like just dreams in isolation, but kind of like chronologically, like a sort of franchise of dreams is probably dangerous. Yeah, well, it happens in Inception. So I don't know if maybe you are actually in a parallel universe where you're quite close to Bono. Damn. Hang on, before, you, before we get into me, I must just tell you a couple of things about Bono. Yeah. Uh, well, it's two things, really. Well, one is I really like the fact that you like Bono. I think the reason I'm doing this podcast is uh, I've noticed on Twitter and, and in your stand-up uh, that you are someone who I think oh, I'm interested in what he's doing. Uh, because one of the things I say about myself these days, uh, we'll get on to Bono in a minute, by the way, but anyway, yeah, sure. uh, things I say about myself is that I don't think of myself as having a wing, like not right, left wing or whatever, or, and not centrist either. I just... Uh, I've decided, I've always been obsessed with original thinking. That's really the thing that I think of Mm. as the most important thing in life. Like You have to try and think originally. And anyone who imposes any kind of preordained map on how they think about something, 
i.e. I'm left wing, so I have to think about it like this. I'm right wing, so I have to think about it like this. Before they've thought about it, I can't bear that. And so mm. I, like to, I like to think that I now think about any issue, like, right, what do I actually think about this without, like, oh, I must think about it like this because I'm political in one way or the other. And so when you, you saying I like Bono is part of that because I would never agree with any fucking group thing that thought Bono was a cunt. Just because he's like... Well, okay. it's, a, it's a simplistic view, isn't it? It's like you it, two became... You know, they started out quite sort of uh, Indian alternative. Then they became so big that it was cool to hate them. But then it yeah. moved to everybody hated them. But there's still a group of people that think expressing a dislike of you two is somehow a kind being off the grid when it's probably... It's, it's, it's like thinking that Prince Charles isn't Prince Harry's dad. It's actually the most common view but it's somehow yeah. masquerading as this, this edgy take. Yeah, that's right. Well, that will continue to happen, I think, with... That, that is from the left. The, essentially, the left will always think their view is the anti-establishment one, uh, and hating Bono is a kind of left-wing thing, although there's people on the right will hate him as well uh, for being a do-gooder or a virtue signal, but there'll be people on the left who hate him for being a tax-avoiding hypocrite or whatever they hate him for. Anyway, I've met him. <laughs> I've met him, I think, a couple of times. And the only thing I can remember about meeting... Well, actually, I must tell you a story about meeting The Edge. Can I... Can I just oh, mate, I am happy to take on any YouTube Can I part that? Uh, but anyway, uh, I met Bono, and Bono actually said to me that he thought comedians... This is what this is an exact quote. He said, comedians now are top of the food chain. He meant artistically. I don't okay. think he meant it in terms of actual... When, when was this? What year? Oh, it's about, this is about 15 years ago. I used to be very friendly with a guy called Andy Gill... Sadly, died, I think, of coronavirus, although not actually proved. He was in a band called The Gang of Four. Yeah. Uh, brilliant kind of post-punk band. He, he was a very close friend of mine. He died right at the start of the pandemic, and he was very friendly with uh, Bono and U2. So I met him, met Bono via Andy Gill. Uh, but I remember Bono saying that to me, and I think it was a nice thing to say, although when I was there with Bono, I didn't particularly feel higher than him in the food chain <laughs> at that moment. But let me tell you the edge story. This is a story I have told before. In fact, I told it in my show about fame, which was mainly a show about embarrassing things that have happened to me in fame, which is a world that I've always felt not entirely at home in uh, and, and have always felt like, oh, I've now said something that a proper person who knows how to be famous wouldn't say. Uh, but this was not actually me saying it. So I... Um, actually, Bono must have been at this one as well. I was invited to a party in Dublin uh, by a friend of mine who was in the music business. And this is quite glamorous. Yeah. At the party was R.E.M., <laughs> U2, me and my girlfriend, and I think the mayor of Dublin. And what, <laughs> year, what year was this, David? That would have been mid-90s. Mid-90s. So, I mean, if there's any young people listening, something has happened to guitar music. It, it completely lost its all its self-confidence. So it's almost, it's really difficult to explain the sort of pomp and status of, of those bands at, at that time. Because you 2 yeah. are still sort of cresting after Acton Baby. R.E.M. was sort of at their, their zenith. It, they were absolutely, they were the best band in the world, I would say, at the time. Yeah. And I was a massive fan of them as well. I mean, what basically this woman whose name is Barbara Chabron, who's worked in the music business for years and is a Chelsea fan, rang me up one day. I mean, this my life was a bit more like this in the 90s <laughs> and said, you want to come to Dublin for a party? This is who the other guests will be. I said, fuck yeah, and just went with my then girlfriend. Anyway, my then girlfriend was quite young, not me too young. She was 20. Uh, I was like 28 or something, but she was quite young and she was not, a person au fait with you too. In fact, she was already part of the coming generation, I would say, that was not interested in you too. She was only interested in dance, music, or whatever. But yeah. she'd come with because she was my girlfriend, right? So anyway, her name's Sarah. Uh, still very friendly with her, even though we're not together. So uh, during this, we're standing around with, I don't know, Michael Stipe and a couple of other people, and the edge comes over to the group that we're talking to, right? And he introduces himself, even though everyone there should know who he is. He does a polite thing, which is to introduce himself. Uh, and he, he, he calls himself The Edge. Right, he doesn't call himself, he calls himself The Edge. And my girlfriend, this young person who doesn't know who he is, says, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he goes really red and says, The Edge. And she goes, 
sorry, what's your name? <laughs> and it's so embarrassing. And he, eventually he does say, well, my real name is David Evans. <laughs> people call me The Edge, right? And actually it was so embarrassing, partly because it revealed something, which is that The Edge is a very weird sort of nickname. It yes. Is, like it reveals suddenly the scales fell from her eyes it's incredible really i mean like and also when he says but people call me the edge it really is people david or or you because you've literally just called yourself that and it's such a it's such a it's such a humble name to have to reveal as well it'd be great like his name if his name still had some power in it but it sounds like the one of the most common welsh names imaginable he's wearing a big hat so he goes very red <laughs> under his big hat and says my real name is David Evans. So it's really embarrassing. I take Sarah away from this circle before she can do any more damage. <laughs> and I say to her in a quiet corner, do you really not know who that is? Right? And, it, and she says to me, it's absolutely true. Right? Well, I could tell he was kind of a rocky, kind of hard rocking kind of guy, which is why I thought it was odd that he was saying his name was Reg. <laughs> to me was I stopped doing stand-up um, live stand-up in about 1997 uh, I did a, I did some stuff I had a terrible corporate gig that I sometimes talk about as closing the door on it for a bit uh, and but that was basically doing I was doing TV I was doing Vanilla Skinner on plan uh, I was writing films and all that stuff and having kids and I thought you know what I'll stop doing stand-up because I've been doing it incessantly really all through, I was on the cabaret circuit, then all Newman and Badil and Wembley and all that stuff. I was, and then I did a couple of solo tours. You know, as you know, it's very psychologically all consuming. And I thought I'll stop doing it for a bit. And when I came back to it, which was uh, in sort of 2014, 2013, what really happened was, and it's just an accident, really, Jeff, but it was, I did find a new way of doing it. And that's what you're talking about is not yeah. just repeating yourself, finding new ways of doing it. But I don't, I don't know that I act- actively thought that. What happened was I had been doing a show on Radio 4 called Forethought, in which I, I hosted it for a while. And then people, people just come on and they talk about something for like 15 minutes. And it's not stand-up. It's just speaking about something for 15 minutes. Mm. And then I was invited to do a thing a bit like that called 5 Times 15, which is a sort of talky TED Talk-like thing that happens in West London. I thought, oh, I've been doing this for a while. I'll give it a go. I'll do a 15-minute talk about fame. And I thought, well, what do I know about? I said, I'll talk about fame. And I did this thing that I don't think people have done before, which is I talked about the, the mundane reality of being slightly more visible than other people and how that impacts on your everyday life. And people pissed themselves is what happened. Right? I, wasn't, yeah. I knew it was funny, but I didn't think of it as stand-up. And I thought, all oh, right, so what I'll do is I'll create a show where I talk just about one subject, I really go into it. I use, uh, I now always use pictures and stuff like that as well. So it's an element of lecture to it, but I always, you know, make them really as funny as possible. But I hope now to get in my shows from place A to place B, and I've said something and I'm really talking about something that I know about and that I feel I've got something to say about. So I've done one about that, one about my family, and one about um, trolls, which is the one I was doing that got furloughed. Um, and it's they're different. They're different from the type of stand-up I was doing before, and that newness is important, and I suppose there is something else which is a bit of a bleak thing to say, but you're 43, so you'll perhaps understand, yeah. which is they feel age-appropriate to me. <laughs> I don't know that when I came back to doing stand-up in my late 40s and early 50s or whatever, I didn't feel I could just go on and do patter anymore. Or, or do any of those lunges and those physical sort of... Yeah, well, all that as well. Yeah, I might hurt myself. But you know what I mean? And also, I didn't want to be as as brash as I used to be. That's a young man's thing. Mm. I mean, well, I know. remember um, with the with the fame show, like straight from the poster from it, it was like very funny. There was you you had a quote. It was kind of a screen grab of an exchange you'd had online where it was something like "Fame is a is a mask that eats the face." Yeah, that's a John Updike quote. Fame is a mask that eats into the face. And, and, and the reply that you got was. I think it was fuck off shit beard. I think, think it was because I remember I walked past it every shut day. It, it was shut it shit beard. But it, shut it was fuck off beard. you beardy twat. I think. No, uh, no, it was it was definitely shut it shit beard because that's one of the things <laughs> I liked shit. about it. Is that I noticed you said this morning you yeah. you tweeted a troll this morning that was funny. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've always thought about trolls. I mean, obviously some of them 
you know, you have to react to because they're just abuse. But sometimes they make you laugh immediately because I thought shitbeard, king of the pirate shitbeard in seemed to be like such a hilarious thing to call me. Uh, and also fame is a mask that eats into the face. It's quite a highfalutin very well, that was what was funny because within it, it had this like what's perfect for a gag is like it had this status drop right there. You know, it was, it, I mean, obviously you'd chosen to include it, so you you were aware of that kind of peril. But I think like you know, Catherine Ryan of, often says this about trolls. It's like she sort of feels honoured when when they say something that's genuinely funny about them or something that you haven't thought about yourself or something that you think like actually that is quite hurtful I remember um the first time I did mass report obviously because of my political leanings I got a certain level of pushback and I kind of it all blended into one so I was able to ignore it but then there was this one woman and most all the other stuff was blokes as usual right um, but there's one woman that said, uh, well, he seemed to be enjoying himself, which I really stuck out. I thought, what a, what a funny thing to say. Like, it's just, and then when I rewatched it, I thought it's so funny, the idea that I'm having the best time there and, and no, no one's having as good a time as me. So I sort of, I just want, yeah, I, I just kind of enjoy it when people, because we're comics at the end of the day. You said in an exchange that we had a few months ago, I can't remember now, you might be able to remember what the exchange was originally about. But I mentioned people something about sending you abusive tweets, and you said that people sending me abusive tweets is the only time I feel alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, you yeah. Know, what was it about that we got there? I can't. Remember. I can't remember, but I do think it's part of the function because I, I, I suspect that both of us have this with, with social media. Is I, I think without sort of blowing smoke up our collective asses, I do see it for what it is. So I don't think it's exactly real life, and I'm always trying to work out what its real function is and. And I think it sometimes like people do want to feel angry. You wouldn't keep going back to something that made you feel angry if you didn't need yeah. that on some level. Well, I've talked about this. I talk about it a lot in my new show about trolls, but actually I talked about it in my previous show about my family as well, uh, because I began that show, which was mainly a very personal show, but I began it by talking about social media because I showed some examples of just extreme outrage in response to some of my jokes, including some of my most innocuous jokes. Uh, and I was saying that uh, that I think uh, outrage confirms identity. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Meaning that people want to feel that they are this person. I am very left-wing or I'm very right-wing or I really believe in this or I'm really feminist. And you said something which actually doesn't really impinge on that, but I'm going to find a way of being angry about it so I can prove what a, insert X, insert feminist, insert whatever it is, I am. You know, And that seems to me to be the function of social media. And the reason I put it in the family show was I'm, I wanted to say, look, People get incredibly annoyed and offended by stuff that is very innocuous. I'm now going to be very, very offensive about my own family. Yeah. Right? So who should be outraged and annoyed about that? And it was kind of a way of outflanking people who were going to say, how can David Baddiel say this stuff about his mum and his dad and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in the new show, which is about trolls, which I'd love you to come and see. Yeah, I'd love to. It's a huge ex analysis, really. I mean funny it's probably the show that gets my biggest laughs overall of the last three shows i've done but it is an analysis of what the fuck people are doing when they're you know getting so angry and emotional on social media okay just button in the chat with me and david there hope you're enjoying it i'm sure you are it's also a slightly weird point to button in on uh just quick hype to the five pound patrons gareth roberts richard dutton and David Blakeburn. What a great name David Blakeburn is. I'll tell you something, if I was writing one of those bullshit uh, kind of women's sort of sex fantasy novels like Fifty Shades of, of Wankstain and that's <laughs> childish. Come on, it's late. I'm doing, I'm recording this bit late. Uh, David Blakeburn would be the name I would give to the romantic lead. Do you know what I mean? Because there's something about that name, Blakeburn. It just sounds like he's, it sounds like he's got seven inches on the slack. Um, <laughs> I should never record these bits late again, ever. There's, there's definitely a kind of schoolboy element that's coming in later on. Uh, just a hype again for the Patreon. If you want to support this podcast and keep it ad-free, go to uh, Patreon and just put in either Jeff Norcott or What Most People Think. And there, there's stuff coming up, people. There's, lo there's stuff coming up. I, I don't want to give the game away, but there is some stuff you're going to want to be a part of. And by part of, I mean, I'm going to... I've got a little tiny TV-type format for online that I'm going to do, and I'm going to guinea pig test it on you guys you get to see the first you can 
you get to try the recipe before it's re you get to try the Ben and Jerry so I can get to the Harkendaz. I'm not really selling this, but what I mean is occasionally we have like new material online gigs and there are a lot of perks that go with being a Patreon at any level. So uh, yeah, the more of those, the more content I can produce like this. And just a reminder, there's the last two front room fringes coming up. Again, I mentioned them earlier, the Thursday, the 20th of August, Friday the 21st. We're now like 70% sold for that. And uh, once they're gone, they're gone. So um, drop them while they're hot. <laughs> or some, I can't say those phrases. I can't say those phrases. You know a word I really want to say, but I know I'm too old to say, is legit. You know when people say, oh my God, I'm, I am legit disturbed by that. I can't say it, it just sounds terrible. It's like also when people go, um, you know the thing they do where they clap between each point they make, where they go, you don't understand me. And I sort of think, clapping your hands between words doesn't mean you're fucking right. you a question that might be a difficult question which is do you think sometimes when you're on the mash report or whatever it might be that you are ticking a box in your own way yeah um, yeah totally i mean I, I think that that is it's it's something that i've been conscious of uh, on that show the problem is is when when you get like a um like such a small bit of a show that's so overwhelmingly one way like yeah. there are bits, as you know, with television, there are bits that I do. You're at the mercy of whether the studio audience laugh at that bit. And then you're also at the mercy of whether or not that makes the edit. So, you know, bear in mind that the, the, the studio audience for that can be quite liberal left. It, you know, they'll, they'll tend, what they'll tend to laugh at more is when I'm whacking myself over the head with a frying pan, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. so and, 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 you know, from a producer's point of view, they're going to want to go with the thing that got organic laughs. So sometimes as the show comes out in the edit, you think, oh, well, that's a shame that that bit that I did about Donald Tusk wasn't there. You know, or that's a shame that that thing that I said about Obama wasn't there. But that, I suppose, is the, the kind of perils of topical comedy to a point. I think what you've done, I think, I'm not suggesting in any way it's an act, because you clearly do are, you know, of this political persuasion, but you have still managed to sort of monetize by branding yourself, you know, I'm the straight, white, working-class male, centre-right stand-up. That gives those producers... The ability to say, right, well, we'll put Jeff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so no, mate, I've been, I've been lucky. If you look at it by rights as well, let's not forget the fact that I'm middle-aged, you know, and if you want to yeah. talk about an overlook, we both know, like, how professional the stand-up circuit is in this country and how many unbelievably talented stand-ups that could have all smashed live at the Apollo have never had a sniff. So I, I would love to think that, like, in, in the first, you know, when I was first talking about these things, I had that kind of long game. I didn't at the beginning. But there's no doubt that, you know, it comes a point where you think, well, this, you know, this obviously has value. And, and, and also increasingly, and this might sound a bit fucking worthy, but I feel increasingly motivated to provide that balance because I think the, abs right. the absence of it is, like, damaging. Like, when you look at, like... And I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, basically, it's you and Simon Evans. Yeah. Now, another thing is... Sorry, I know, I know this is meant to be more about me than about you, yeah, but yeah. I'm really interested in this. Uh, is... I, I have never... I mean, you said you got a bit piled on when you are on the MASH report, but I don't think of you as someone who is a, a massive target for pile-ons and stuff. Not these days, no. I did, Initially, when I first came to people's consciousness, because it had been so long since there was anyone conservative who was a comedian, people were threatened by the idea, and I, I, there was a lot of automatic, you know, where people hadn't heard or, or come across anything I'd done, but they would just say, oh, he's like Jim Davidson, he's like Bernard Manning. And, and yeah, it's quite benevolent these days. And ultimately, people get to know who you are. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not a combative person. They, arguably, I could maybe have built a more bigger online following if I had been like, fuck you, <laughs> you know, like. But it's unsustainable in the long run, isn't it? You, ultimately, you've got to stand up on stage and be that. And if it, and all well, coming, back, coming back to what I was you know, talking about before with like, the mm -hmm. Trolls show, and I have said this before when, when I was talking about the show, but what I was always against the idea of don't feed the trolls, right? Because as a comedian, I always thought, well, these are hecklers, right? These are people I don't know shouting at me from the dark, often very insulting and very mental things. So what I will do is I will put them down in a funny way, right? And I was always doing that, and people did like it, and they still like it. I don't do it quite so often because I've now got too many followers and too many trolls to otherwise I'd be doing it all day. But yeah. the reason I mention it is that thing you said about combative, because 
not in every single case, but in most cases, my way of dealing with hecklers is to say yes to whatever the heck- heckle says <laughs> and then slyly put them down in saying yes. You know, there's this thing in improvisation where you always say yes and if you're improvising. Yeah. Right? Um, I, I, don't, I don't really like improvisation in itself because I'm not a good enough actor, but in conversation and with someone who's heckling me, I use the same technique. I'll always say yes to what they're saying and it make them look foolish. More like yes, but than yes and. Like a great heckle put down, not one of mine, but Frank, the first time I saw Frank Skinner uh, when I was, I was comparing at the comedy store, I think, and this new bloke came on. I hadn't really watched, knew much about him. And I sort of watched, I often went back to the dressing room, but I thought, I'll watch this bloke, he seems interesting. And a bloke shouted him, a drunk medical student, shouted at him, apropos of nothing, oh, I remember you from medical school. And Frank said, yeah, I remember you, you were the one in the jar. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, about risk in comedy, because I think now, you know, we, we spoke about certain styles and combative styles of, of what people perceive as risky in comedy now. And I think that at the moment, for some reason, it always seems to be like it's political uh, comedy or cultural comedy. But I, I think that, you know, the show that you did about your parents, like, and, and, and the, the bluntness in that and being willing to be honest about uh, a deceased parent, because both both my parents have gone now, and and a um, and a stepdad as well. So that really spoke to me about you know having to deliver the eulogy, and then there's this strange sort of comfort blanket of bullshit that everyone wraps themselves in, and 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 then yet the moment you say something truthful about the person, everybody seems to breathe. What that kind of comedy? I don't think people realise how brave that is, and it's not it's not kind of Edinburgh style neuroses comedy, which again I don't think is as brave as it's given credit for. Like talking about death. And who people are is, is probably the hardest subjects going. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's very complicated. That I mean, I think that because everything is so political now, and social media has done that, I think bravery is seen almost entirely in terms of politics. So you know, Nick Cave this morning has said something about cancel culture, uh, which has led to a usual shouting match between. Uh, people on either side of the culture wars about whether you know that's a good or bad thing or whatever and so all the sort of outrage and speaking out seems to be you know about that kind of thing but you're right uh, and certainly the way that I think as I grow older more and more is that a lot of bravery might be found in the personal yes rather than the political not that the political is not a space for bravery but there is a lot of bravery that one can talk about as existing in the space of the personal and I you know, when my mum died, when she died very horribly, very suddenly, and my dad had dementia already by the time he died, so it was all incredibly traumatic. Um, I thought, how do I process all this? And my way of processing it was through comedy when I eventually did that show, but also, and this is very me, through truth, right? I, I am someone who thinks, right, it's complicated here, what I feel about this, so I'm going to think about it and try and find out what the truth is. And the truth about it involved telling the truth about particularly my mum, who had had a very uh, colourful sex life and whose sex life with a golfing memorabilia salesman had impacted on us all because she'd turned our lives over to fucking golf. And (laughs) I knew that was funny, but it was also quite dangerous. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was dangerous for me and my brothers. It was dangerous for friends of my mum. And it was some reviewers said, you know, oh, I feel terrible that David Baddiel is doing this show, you know, without his mother having a say in it. That's what the Daily Mail said anyway. Uh, And I kind of thought, well, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is my mother is dead. I actually know this show comes from love, uh, even though it's an incredibly warts and all thing. And the act of love is saying, let me tell you the truth about this person because that is much more about how she remains loved in my memory than presenting this idealised, angelic, post-death image that we all have to go with. Well, because um, grief, and- grief is hard, hard enough when it's not targeted on an actual person. That's what I think. And I, I think, you know, I do talk about men's mental health for this. I think grief is really tricky with blokes because like, I think if you're a comic, you have a level of emotional intelligence where you just, you talk about what you're thinking anyway. But it yeah, throws up... And it throws up a lot of stuff for blokes that are just not ready for you. And, and you can only complicate that further still if you put a filter 
on on someone. You know, I, mean, I remember when I was talking about my dad, I was doing the eulogy in the church and I was talking about a, th- a few things about him and I'd sort of said a couple of pleasantries. And then I just said, at the end of the day, he was a difficult bloke, right? <laughs> you just felt, and he really was, but I, I sort of felt like that was, the, that was the success of his character, was that we all stuck with him despite that. Like, he wasn't like a difficult bloke who ended up a hermit. He was a difficult bloke who died well-loved, which also sort of technically is like a tricky par five. You know, he'd actually done the yeah. thing. Everyone could be like me calling someone mate, whereas he was like, he rarely called people mate. You know, he, he, was, he was a hard guy to argue with. So... So I think that, did you, I mean, you must have got a lot of feedback after that show. People who found it, like, I'd imagine blokes as well, you know, like, liberating just to hear, yeah. hear that I mean, honesty. I, yeah, no, I got, well, I, had, I mean, actually, more, more in the press, people talk more about the, the, what I felt was the subplot of that show, which is my dad's dementia. Dementia's a bit of a hot-button topic, I guess, and whatever. Yeah. In fact, I was talking about that openly and talking about that in a very particular way, i.e. making it funny, and also because my dad, at the time, uh, had he's much quieter now, but he had a type of dementia which meant he was incredibly sweary and incredibly disinhibited sexually, which <laughs> kind of what he was, is what he was always like. Um, he that became a way of making that funny, and people were very like that. Again, is like typical of the culture in that it's like, oh, this is this is a topic. It's like, can dementia be funny and all that? But actually, the show in the main was about my mum died. I was at her memorial service, and people were giving me a version of my mum that is not who she was. And that is another erasure. Death is the first one, yeah. and this memorialising is another. And I'm already traumatised by the fact that she's gone. Perhaps I'm not going to let her go twice, right? And so, and that involves talking about how she was, and she was fucking mental, <laughs> and also totally, like that affair that my mum had with her golfing memorabilia thing defined my mum's life. Right. I mean, she was, as I say, she became a golfing memorabilia specialist, <laughs> essentially because she was in love with a golfing memorabilia bloke and thought this is the way of impressing him. In fact, he got really pissed off because it was encroaching on his business. Well, it's funny. And I saw I, I was just sort of doing a bit of research. I saw a clip where you were speaking to uh, Eamon and Ruth about this show and you were sort of saying that, that she was very proud of the affair. Again, which as comics, we instinctively find that stuff funny because it's so fucking counterintuitive. But that yeah. she was, she would sort of thought it was, it was uh, a glamorous thing to be involved in. I totally, no, no, she was, and a lot of the show, a lot of the biggest laughs in that show were the f- incredibly flagrant way that my mum would tell anyone she possibly could about the affair, uh, and would pump it up as well, because essentially, I think she basically shagged this bloke uh, a number of times over about twenty years, but it was not really uh, that. You know, I think he basically lost interest many times. But for her, as she once said to a girlfriend of my brother's who she had never met before, she just broke off talking to them and said, yes, I've been his mistress for 20 years. And the idea of that, mistress, right, the sort of Parisian very idea. Very 70s idea. Like, living in Dolly's Hill and every so often <laughs> she would go to a golfing memorabilia thing in Swindon and fuck him, right? It's, it's, that, that's not, but she had a 19th century Parisian idea and I love that. I love it. I think it makes her very, very, you know, kind of colourful and at some level vulnerable and, you know, it makes me love her more. Yeah, no, I know you mean, I mean, like, also the language, people need to understand the language around uh, adultery has changed. Like, before one, words like adultery used to be used, mistress and affair. Now, those words are quite 1970s in a way. Now it's about cheating it's a lot more active in terms of of, of yes. kind of apportioning a blame but there were a lot of I remember there were sitcoms back in the day that used to kind of romance so who was the woman that couldn't cook in the sitcom that always used to burn the family dinner which we all found Wendy a little uh, Wendy was it that well life is like a butterfly or was it called butterfly yeah, yeah Wendy Craig yeah Wendy Craig and then she, she used to prepared, didn't she? In yeah, yeah and she used to go and sit with that with that guy on, on the bench really and, and it yeah. was and it, it didn't make you in the 1970s, people fucking loved adultery. <laughs> I mean, John Updike is my favourite writer, and all his books are about adultery. Uh, and he's hated now by, by to use the name, the woke, uh, yeah. because he's thought of as just having a male gaze, which he does, uh, although he, I think he writes about women as well, but also because he's not, he has no morality about adultery. You know, that idea of cheating doesn't really exist for him because... He, he finds all his plots and his relationships and his philosophy through what it means to try and be monogamous and to fail at it. And 
now you can't, you're not allowed to think of that stuff except in very stern moral ways. Well, I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? If, if you're not forgiven for some nonsense you wrote on a phone whilst having a shit, like you, yeah. could, li- you could literally <laughs> lose your career for that, then, then, you know, like a three-month liaison. I mean, even liaison, what, why was it so fucking mystical? It's always French. It's always French. <laughs> Negligé would be in there somewhere. Neg- because... Yes, negligee, petticoats, you know, menage yeah. a trois. All... Yeah, menage a trois, exactly. It's because that's a very good point. I think the influx of French vocabulary to describe the world of adultery was all to do with English suburban people wanting to feel glamorous. Yeah, and just wanting to bang other people, but needing to kind of dress it in, in yeah. something more than the, the kind of what can often be the gritty and grotty reality of meeting people in a fucking travel lodge. Golf is hilarious. It's a hilariously stupid sport with hilariously stupid trappings, but it's also, certainly in the 70s, an image of sort of you know, slightly higher class golf club existence that my mum also aspired yeah. to. Remember, she's a refugee from the Nazis and she'd grown up in an unbelievably harsh environment where basically her parents had just fucking got to this country on the skin of their teeth. All their relatives were killed. They lived in one room in Cambridge for about 10 years um, and my, my grandfather was interned on the Isle of Man. He was in and out of mental hospital. I mean, I can't... When people talk about... Now, I know this is very old cunt of me, but when people talk about, you know, oh, victimising and I've had it harder, but I just think, you really haven't, right? You really haven't. Right? I, like, basically, my grandparents' family was, were murdered and my mum, the damage that she had and she exhibited was all to do with the fact that she grew up in this unbelievably, you know, difficult way. And then I think, at some very, very deep subconscious level she could never have articulated thought, well, I'm going to live my life as colourfully and as best I can. Mm. But, then she, but then she didn't have access to doing that in any properly glamorous way because she lived in Dollis Hill with my dad. <laughs> so the theory she could get was this golfing memorabilia sales. But I don't want to like wang in like, to, to the anti-Semitism stuff here, but you talk about your mother's... Um, sort of My mum was, was, was an orphan, you know, like properly left on the doorstep of an orphanage and stuff like that. And I sometimes wonder, like, she had very sort of uh, short thrift for people that would moan about stuff and she often she often found people who were on crusade she found them to be a bit privileged if you know what I mean she sort of, she sort of thought I, I wish I had the time to give a shit about saving the whales if you know what I mean and I, I probably carried um, a bit of that forward and I, I wonder if you've got a slightly you know at the very least critical eye on on wokeism genuine suffering and this is not to, this is what we always end up doing isn't it? I'm, I'm now thinking of all the caveats I have to exclude yeah, and I'm not discounting racism or sexism I mean I should just say what I mean is like I think if you've had like an actually hard life most of your life that counts for more than anything yeah yeah I mean it's interesting about the caveats I've written about this about how no one writes or indeed says anything now without hearing the mob in their ears before yeah. they say which is, that is a problem, I think, the fact that one can't... Well, even me, I do this podcast, it's called What Most People Think, but even I'm, you know, I sort of... Yeah, you, you, are, you, yeah, you, you think, like, oh, should I cut that, or should I not say that? I know, it's, that is the situation that we live in, although the people who agree with that would say, and I, I see their point, no, no, there's free speech, there's just not, there's just, like, no free speech without consequences and whatever. But it's the, que- the question is whether what you just said about you know, saying something, tweeting something, accidentally having a shit and that having incredible consequences, whether that is okay. Uh, but well, that's what, I was, what that's... I say about, I mean, I don't, you know what, I don't want to get into anti-Semitism only because I've done truck. I'm sure, I'm sure, it. yeah. And also, and we'll, we won't have time, but obviously for lots of reasons, that is one of my issues with what, what we're calling here the woke. Uh I've written a whole book, uh, which will come out at the end of the year, called Jews Don't Count. And yeah. what people need to understand about that book, which I've noticed a lot of people don't, is it's about specifically the leaving out of Jewish race, anti-Jewish racism and, and Jewish concern and offence to Jews by what you might call the woke. Mm. It's not about traditional, for want of a better word, anti-Semitism. I'm not interested really in that book, in the Nazis or the neo-Nazis or even just right-wing people who don't really like Jews and don't think they should be in golf clubs, uh, which I also think was an issue as to why my mum was a <laughs> I finally made it. <laughs> finally got in there, yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not sort of bothered. It's really about how, at a time of very extreme 
identity politics, which is what we're talking about, how anyone can get offended by what seems like the very smallest microaggression, Jews and offending against them, it's taken a very long time and it still doesn't really happen, that that community feels like, oh yeah, yeah, we shouldn't say that about Jews or we should worry about saying that about Jews and whatever. Um, And that obviously does tie into what you're saying because I come, happen to come, I mean, all Jews do really, but I quite closely come from a background where real proper fucking suffering was inflicted upon my family because they were Jewish. I mean, I just can't get my head around it. It has been weird, I suppose, in the comedy community that the amount of, the, the sort of small number of comedians who see it as an issue that they should say anything on. But... Uh, well, I mean, that was my main... I mean, now we are getting on to it, but, you know, what was complicated for me a bit, I mean, it's complicated for me in general, but online, uh, in general, during the last election, particularly as it, as it grew towards, towards it, uh, it became more and more like we have to ignore that uh, as an issue with Corbyn and so a lot of comedians, and I'm not going to mention any particular name, but I did see a lot of comedians essentially saying, if you don't vote for Corbyn, you're a terrible person. Yeah, or indeed a racist because of stuff that Boris Johnson... That is weird for me as a Jew who... I know there were some Jews who liked him, but honestly, there weren't very many. Uh, so most Jews were worried about Corbyn. Uh, and they had reason to be. Uh, uh, you know, for... You know, I, I didn't agree with the Jewish Chronicle that he was an existential threat. He wasn't fucking Hitler, but there were issues, yeah. and those issues were deserving of a serious of serious attention. And yet, I see people basically saying, "You don't vote for Corbyn, you're just a terrible person." Uh, happening from comedians and 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 people I admire and whatever uh, on the internet, and that is an example of what I mean by Jews don't count. Before I go, hmm. just very briefly mention Brexit because while you're here, sure, you are pro Brexit, right? Is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, vote. I mean, I always say like I was, I was a Leave voter rather than a Brexiteer, if you know what I mean. Right, I sort of right. asked a question, and that was my I ask you something, which is so that is something that I am at the other end of the political spectrum for you. Probably, we're well, not completely the other end. I'm not like a man. I mean, I, I was very happy to listen to some Leave arguments, and some Leave arguments I thought had some merit at the time. But what I think now is, it's clear that it's going to be damaging economically to the UK. And all I'm hearing from pro-Brexit, pro-Leave people is, well, it doesn't matter because it was democratic. And I kind of think, well, does that really work? Because if, if it's just we all decided to do something, and it's clear now that that was the wrong decision, normally, in any normal situation, you'd go back on it. But now it just seems like, well, no, we can't, because that's what we decided. But there's, I suppose my first reaction is it's not a normal situation. That was always my problem, was when the, when the vote happened, right, is that I also, well, you, you can't get around this thing. All you can do is argue about the details, right? And that's what we spent several years doing. I think the mismanagement of that argument, i.e. when Remain moved to a full kind of like revoke or second referendum position. I mean, because ultimately, if people sort of accepted that some sort of meaningful Brexit had to happen and they would have preferred a soft Brexit, that was voted down numerous times, like Theresa May's death. I could possibly have lived with that deal, unlike a lot of Brexiteers, you know, something that kept people in a regulatory sense close. So on the one hand, I am a bit sort of in the middle on this because I'm sympathetic to the idea of the impending peril. But I also think that democracy isn't the same as if people say, well, you know, you've exchanged contracts and you buy a house. It, it, it's not the same as that because it's almost like the, the sort of fundamental question of, of what democracy means because once you negate one vote, and I accept that there is a different thing with general elections, is you've kind of, um, you've kind of shown the, the strings. You've shown that it can be done. And I, I, every time I think it through, like, you know, when earlier I spoke about those internal political dials, I always come back to the same idea that the moment that vote was returned, some version of meaningful Brexit had to be happened. Whether the Brexit looks like we're going to have now is close to what I wanted, probably not. But right. the way that the argument was managed, you know, the Andrew Adonis's, the Gina Millers, what it came to represent, it sort yeah. of meant that like a more sort of sensible or softer Brexit, it, it became impossible because they almost gambled and went for the car, didn't they? You know, they suddenly thought, oh, we could have a softer Brexit. Hang on, we could revoke this fucking thing, you know? Right. And so all yeah. the resources went towards that and, and then the chance went, I think. 
You're right, and you're, you're talking about the narrative, right, which which is fucked up in a thousand ways. But I sort of think if you can just, if we all could just look at it sort of like, okay, so all this bollocks has happened, but now we're in this weird situation whereby, I could be wrong here, but literally no one, not even Nigel Farage, as far as I can make out, actually thinks that leaving the EU will be better for our country economically. But we're doing it anyway, <laughs> That just feels so weird. Like, yeah, I mean, if if depending on like where you, the the sort of degree to which you place economics ahead of any other consideration, it, it I guess it does seem weird. That's what it, here's the problem, Jeff. With that is, I think what Farage did, and you may feel that it became that, and so that is what it is. But what he basically did was take, you know, I, I said this to Nigel Farage, by the way, on a on a program called uh, what's he called that thing that Tom Bradbury used to do on ITV, the agenda. Yeah. This was about two years before Brexit. I said, what you've done, Nigel, and I, by the way, I, he was, he, he did it, and I, was, I wasn't wrong, but I was wrong to do it down as a thing because it became a massive thing. But I said, Europe, Nigel, it's like the really boring thing at the end of the news. No one's interested in Europe. You're taking it, and you're making it this massive emotional issue, right? And that is what he did. And I do honestly believe that it wasn't. It wasn't a massive emotional issue for most people. It's a trade block. And most people just thought 10 years ago, what? Oh, yeah, whatever. Fucking, I don't know, something about fish, right? Most people. Uh, now, then what happened is Nigel Farage takes that issue and makes it an issue of sovereignty and of character and of personal pride in your country and patriotism or whatever. And it's a fucking trading block. It's not, it's small print. On fucking contracts. I, I think that I think that what we joined was a trading block. I suppose the problems is the additional reach that it had um, over time. You know, so I, I agree. I mean, if you look at like the the, the actual cost of the, the budget, that twelve billion, right? If you if if you look at that on a pie chart of what Britain spends its money on, it's kind of amazing that the Remain campaign didn't use that visual because expressed in that way and compared to other national expenditure, it looks pretty poxy. Um, so if you wanted to win the argument economic, do you, do you know one thing though, David? I really think that they did wrong was they all they always went with the negative about you're going to be poorer. They never once said if you stay in the EU you're going to be richer, right? And as a working class person, that kind of thing appeals to people, right? I right. think I think it was never expressed the other way. It was always right. like you're going to lose uh, this amount of pounds nationally, you're going to lose this amount of pounds in your household. It's right. just such a simple thing to flip that the other way. Yeah, go, I agree with that. But I agree that the Remain campaign was mismanaged in all sorts of ways, and that would be one of them. Because when you think about how the Leave campaign did have very simple ideas, like take back control, you know, and if you if you feel like your life, like with those two things, by the way. Sorry, we're now. I think we're now talking too much about it, but I'm interested, yeah. right? Um, I um, had a chat with Rory Stewart. You know that. Uh, oh yeah, the opium smoking. Yeah, um... <laughs> uh, when he was thinking about being trying to be mayor, and now he isn't. But when he and he, came, he came up to me at a party, I, I've met him before, and said, "Oh, you're good with words. What should my slogan be?" Right? Um, and I, I said, "Well, you should pay me a lot of money for that." He said, oh, "He sort of laughed about it, but I, I was sort of being serious." But anyway, <laughs> I, I ended up having a bit of a chat with him, and he told me what his slogan was at the time because he'd had a focus group, right? And his slogan at the time was London, capital of Europe. And I said, that's terrible. A, it sounds like a wrong answer in a geography quiz. (laughs) (laughs) B, look at at what has worked recently, right? Take back control, get Brexit done. Now, I am good with words, and I can tell you, linguistically, what those things do is they put a verb at the front and they give the people who are taking that into their souls the sense that they're doing something. Right? It makes them feel active in the process of changing the country. And so that's what you need. You need something that says, essentially, make London safe, or whatever it might be. Yes. You, know, you need something that makes people feel right. By voting for you, I am doing something. London, capital of Europe, is just an abstract piece of shit. What most people think. Yeah, no, I, I th- I'm amazed that they don't reach out to comedians more for slogans, and that sounds like a joke, but <laughs> but I honestly think we have to think of fucking show names all the time, and we have to think of ways to, you know, to have something to say on the one show, or, or like a kind of elevator pitch for no, stuff. No, no. I think we should, I have to finish, because I'm unclear. Sure, of course, of course. But one thing you said that I thought was very true, 
is that you said most comedians are emotionally intelligent. You said earlier on, I think when you were talking about men and their emotions or whatever it might be. And that is so true. I, I, don't, I can't really think of a comedian I've ever met, including old, you know, mainstream comedians, who is a stupid person. Yeah. You know, comedians are just not stupid if they're any good. You know, they're not stupid because you have to have a basic brightness and intelligence and original way of thinking to be properly funny. It's, it's very intrinsic. So I think, you know, we can disagree about some things, but I'm never going to not respect your intelligence because I sort of know without knowing you that you'll be a bright bloke. And it's a very interesting thing because at the same time, comedy is downgraded intellectually by most people, still not really thought of as a proper art form or whatever. Not by, but, not, not by Bono, it turns out. Not by Bono, although I know, <laughs> you know what, I didn't believe him. I don't want to slag off Bono, I know he's your idol. But I remember thinking, I don't believe you mean that, Bono. About That's hilarious. <laughs> For a start, you're sitting at a table and I'm standing here, I haven't had any dinner. I mean, and also, like, like his whole touring thing is like, uh, like a, the economy of a small country as well. And yeah. uh, what he, what he meant was all oh, McIntyre selling a few tickets. That's probably he what he did meant. Mean that. He did mean that entirely. <laughs> yeah. I did. I should have quizzed him. Like, what comedians are you thinking of? And then he got then he got really awkward. Then he says, "What well, are you the same bloke whose girlfriend didn't know who the Edge was?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell me to fuck off because the Edge just never got over it, and he's never been the guitarist since. <laughs> well, listen, Dave. I know you got to go and have some lunch, mate. But I, I love that chat, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to. Uh, the new Troll show when it comes out and having a look at the book as well whenever that um, gets published. Thanks very much. I believe, I'm going to say, I believe they are announced, I don't know when this podcast is going out, but I just got an email, I saw it on the edge of my vision while we were talking, that new dates have just been announced for my Troll show. Cool. <laughs> so that's the second second set of new dates. Um, well, that'll be on my website. Having said that, you know, by the time I fucking do this show... The whole world will be different, and I might have dementia. Yeah, so, one of one of the towns that you were going to perform in probably swept away in some sort of monsoon as well. So they you say that one of the venues is gone, <laughs> Northampton Derngate. That's gone. Well, during the time this has happened, there may be others as well. So yeah, snap up the tickets while the venues still exist is my slogan. Brilliant, cool. All right, well, listen, David. Thanks again for coming on, mate. Cheers, Jeff. It's great chat. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was the chat with David Badil. I hope you enjoyed it, man. And like I say, he just produces so much interesting work in so many different formats. I have no idea how I'm going to still be around in the game at the same age that David is now. It's not like massively older than me, but but I hope if I am, I'm still producing. <laughs> You're doing it again, Jeff. You're climbing up his ass. So, fuck you. This is a special day for me. This is my 50th episode. How dare you judge me? Um, we're just going to do well we only really got one letter this week oh we did get one letter um, from somebody about COVID was it James James was making a lot of points basically the kind of stuff I want to hear which is that we're all reacting like massive pussies over the rise in cases over COVID and actually it's because we're testing more yeah I mean it, it makes sense doesn't it but these, these risk averse people they're the same people that sort of say oh my god I can't believe the economy's tanked they're also the same people that thought we should have stayed living in the cellars until September I think I think you can either be upset about the economy or you can have wanted a strict lockdown I'm not sure you really get to do both um, but yeah thanks for that letter James and then just one other letter that we got and you can always send in stuff at what most people think UK at gmail.com uh, I'll read out as many as I can I was there this week I think there's only two this week anyway um, but there was a guy I forgot his name. I need to find out his name. This isn't fair. The guy's gone to the trouble. So a guy called James Hargreaves has remixed one of my jingles for me. And I'm going to play that for you right now. Hopefully you'll be able to hear it. Some people would actually just edit in. Not me. Here we go. Can you hear that? Yeah. Sounds like Danish death metal. Satan. absolutely love the fact that he's just managed to tag on a swear word at the end there but yeah if you want to remix any of them in a style that you want I like dance music but just hearing it in that guy I'm going to say death metal now and James is probably going guy dude if you wanted death metal you would know it was death metal but yeah so those are just do a quick letter section for this week but if you want to pick up on anything that me and David have discussed or want it to be discussed in the next show email whatmostpeoplethinkuk at gmail.com 
Okay, that is the end of the show now. We just need to do a couple of things, which is uh, shout out some £3 Patreons. And this week we had, they had great names this week. What was their names? Tony Hill, Aitken, uh, Callum Aitken and Anthony O'Farrell. Hill, Aitken and O'Farrell. I don't know about you, but that sounds like some sort of folky thing. Maybe not like the levelers, but like some kind of corporate friendly version of a folk. Like, like uh, what are their names? Those guys that were bigger. Uh, Mumford and Sons, you know what I mean? Hill, Aitken and O'Farrell. Like when you hear their names, you think, oh, they sound like some old crooners. And then you listen to them and you go, you know what? I think I could really get into like folk music. And then, I mean, it really stops with just that band. But it's a nice thought to entertain yourself with uh, for a little while. Uh, we did have quite a few reviews this week um, after I bitched about the fact that I'd had a couple of one-star reviews the other week. So let's have a look. This is always... Um, so basically, if you send me a five-star review, I will read it out, pretty much all of them. Uh, this is from Robert Brown, who's Scottish. Hey, Jeff. I've joined in late in the game and playing catch, catch up or playing catch. You just some Scottish thing. I don't know. Scotland and in particular Dundee is not a natural safe space for non SNP voters, and it's nice to have some objectivity. And by objectivity, I mean occasionally you take the piss out of Nicola. I mean I, I've added that last bit, but I'm pretty much sure that's what it is. Uh, this is from Centrist Dad. So let's do a nice gentle Centrist Dad voice. Very funny and spot on. Too many people are afraid to say what Jeff says. And <laughs> is that you as well, Centrist Dad? Yeah? You, you listen to this one in the shed, do you? Just in case the liberal missus doesn't hear and then she hears you. Then you Gareth? Gareth? I don't know why she's speaking like that. Gareth, you've gone, you're having one of your, your moods again. I'm going to put you back on the tofu. Um, <laughs> uh, good balance and always makes me roar with laughter. Keep it up, Jeff. Keep it up, eh? gets harder in middle age doesn't it or or it doesn't that's the problem this is another thing of doing these links late at night i've clearly got sex on the brain and speaking of which the next review is from big e willow Shit. uh the sooner the beauty parlor opens back up the better since lockdown my missus has grown a massive front room friend and is in dire need of a brazilian to tidy things up uh, there's so much going on there. So much going on there. Um, I, I don't know if that came up in, you know, PMQs about that being a reason to open up the beauty sector. Poor men having to stare at their wife's bushy pubis. Um, <laughs> I better just finish this show sooner rather than later, right? Um, the last one here, Ross Bathgate, five-star review. Came for Jeff's take on topical issues. Stayed for the spunky sock jokes. Well, I, I attempted to bring it out of the gutter at the end, but I couldn't. <laughs>